So hear God's word, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. And in one of these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Bill, for those announcements and welcome and reading for us. I started my walk a little bit prematurely. That was awkward. <laughs> well, as Bill said, my name is Paul Brandis. I have the privilege of serving here as uh, the associate pastor, and I am so glad that each one of you is here. I want to extend a welcome as well, and particularly to students, I want to echo Bill's announcement. If you're in 6th through 12th grade, uh, make sure you come on back tonight. We're going to have a, a great gathering, some, some fun games as well as some really uh, hopefully deep and, and substantive teaching as well in a time of small groups. So, so you don't want to miss out. And uh, so if you're a student, make plans to come back tonight. Well, if you would, just bow your heads with me as I ask for God's blessing on our time together. Dear Father, you are good. We are reminded of that this morning in so many ways, whether it's the beautiful fall weather, um, wonderful uh, songs of praise to you led by the, the worship band, God, whether it's good donuts and coffee, um, fellowship of friends, we are reminded in so many ways that you are a good God who, who loves to give good gifts to his children. I pray now, Lord, as we open up your word, that you would bless our time, that I would get completely out of the way and that you would speak through me to all of our hearts, minds, and souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in just a few days at the end of this week, my wife Ashley and I are going to be traveling back to the Chicagoland area. That's where I'm from, born and raised in a northern suburb of Chicago. And we're going back for a really important and special occasion. Uh, my grandmother on my mom's side, my nana, is turning 90. And that's, that is not, as a family member, that's a big deal. That's not a birthday party you miss. I mean, 90's a big one. And so, so we're flying back. I'm um, just really looking forward to that time to get to celebrate uh, with her and with the rest of my family. And uh, this particular uh, grandparent, my Nana, actually lived with my family when I was growing up. And, and so I learned a lot from her. I played countless hours of Skippo. Has anybody else played Skippo? It's really very, I mean, my Nana just she will kick your butt in some Skippo. So I learned how to play, I learned how to lose in Skippo from her, and I also, maybe even most importantly, I learned uh, how to cheer for the Chicago Cubs. That's right, I am a long-suffering Cubs fan. And so when I moved to Kansas City, when Ashley and I moved to Kansas City, I immediately adopted the Royals, right? I mean, they're my, they're my AL team now because, sure, they haven't made the playoffs in or hadn't made the playoffs in 29 years. The Cubs haven't won a World Series in over 100. 
So we'll call it even, right? I mean, come on. Uh, and really, I mean, how great have these last few weeks been? Can we just get like an amen for that? Amen. I mean, dating back to 1985, they have like an impressive winning streak in the playoffs. Uh, it's been so fun, and I was really glad they won yesterday because I knew it was going to make my introduction just that much better. <laughs> Um, it's a fun time, if you're a Royals fan, to be living in Kansas City. Now, let me paint a bit of an odd picture for you. Uh, they have these great watch parties down in Power and Light for the games, right? Now, what if I were to take a, a video camera and a microphone down to Power and Light to these games, and I found a fan, I mean, just the most rabid Royals fan, decked out in blue, just there's no way this guy isn't a Royals fan. And I, and I walk up to him, and I, I put the camera in his face, and I hand him the microphone, or I put the microphone up to him, and I say, do you really want the Royals to win the World Series? I, that's like a weird question, right? It's silly. It's obvious. He'd probably look at me, tilt his head, and go, um, yeah? <laughs> of course I want the Royals to win the World Series. And that is an odd picture. It seems like a silly question. This morning, I have maybe an equally silly and obvious question to pose to all of you, myself included. And again, it seems on the surface like it might be silly and odd, but I submit that I think we need to think carefully about it. Do you really want Jesus in your life? Do you really want Jesus in your life? And again, I mean, you're sitting in a church. Perhaps you think that's almost as silly a question as if I'm a crazy Royals fan and do I want the Royals to win the World Series? Do you really want Jesus in your life? Now, maybe you're here this morning, a friend invited you, a family member, a coworker, and, and you might not be a Christian yet. You may not think that's a silly question. Uh, you, you may be sitting here thinking, yeah, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just here checking this church out. I'm here checking Jesus out. And we're so glad, if that's you this morning, that you've chosen to be here. We, we hope and pray and trust that, that your visit with us will be a good one. But if you're not visiting, if you're a regular here, or, or if you consider yourself to be a Christian, chances are you're probably thinking, looking up at this slide, this question, you're thinking, well, duh, Paul, of course I want Jesus in my life. And I'm glad that you have that initial thought and answer but I want to press into this question a bit more this morning. I want to examine a story and a character from John 5 that I hope challenges us to think carefully before we rush to answer this question. You know, just a couple of minutes ago, Bill read that story and, and introduced that character, us, character to us from John chapter 5. We're now in the fifth week of our fall teaching series. We're calling it Jesus Listens. Uh, it's from the Gospel of John. All of these stories come from the book of John. And the reason that we're calling it Jesus Listens is because the goal of this series is to learn how to share Jesus as Jesus shared Jesus. And as we've been examining these stories in the book of John, what we've found so far is that often the first step in doing that, in sharing Jesus as Jesus shared Jesus, the first step is often listening not speaking. And this morning, what I think we'll find, what I submit to you and what I hope we'll find is that when it comes to the indifferent, it's the same. 
Jesus listens to the indifferent. So do you really want Jesus in your life? Let's dive into this story where I think that we find some evidence that there's a character here who might say no to that question. Verses 1 through 3 of our passage that Bill read, they set the scene. It's the setting. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem to attend a, a religious feast, and he comes upon the pool of Bethsaida, which literally means the pool of mercy. And I think with stories, it's important to try to visualize it, right? I mean, this is why when you read the book and then see the movie, it's never quite as good because you visualize the characters, you've already cast them in their head, and nobody can get it quite as good as you have. And I think what this helps us to do, including in the biblical text with narratives, I think it helps us to, in some ways, become a character ourselves. And so let's picture this setting. I, I've found a painting uh, of this, a an artist's depiction of this uh, scene. It'll help us along with this. You have this pool, and you have what the text says, as Bill read, a multitude of invalids that are hanging about by this pool. We have the depiction of Jesus in the middle there, and then, and then the man, the character uh, that the interaction happens with. But when I read this story, and even when I saw, including when I saw this painting, I, the, the first question that, that hit me was, what's, what's up with these dozens and dozens of physically disabled people just hanging around this pool? Why, why are they here? Well, as uh, legend would have it, uh, an angel would occasionally come down from heaven and stir up the waters of this pool. And, and as the, the superstitious legend went, after this angel had come and stirred up the water, the first person in it afterwards would be healed. That's a difficult picture, isn't it? I mean, these, these multitude of physically disabled people that are they're just waiting around this pool, desperate for something, for anything, to heal them and make them whole again. Well, John's original readers, they would have known about this pool and the superstitious legend without any further explanation. But over time, as John's gospel was copied and recopied for audiences who weren't familiar with the city of Jerusalem, the scribes that were doing this copying, they recognized, hey, the people that are reading this, they're not going to have any idea about this legend. They're going to think it's odd, just like I did and perhaps you did, that just these invalids are, are hanging out by this pool. And so they, they put a sort of study note into the margins. They put a note in that explained this legend of the angel coming down and, and stirring up the water. And in some of the manuscripts, the study note got moved into the actual text of John's gospel. And so you have some manuscripts that have a verse 4 in it that explain the legend and some manuscripts that don't. And this is why if you're reading following along in your English Bibles this morning, it actually skips verse 4. You're like, whoa, that's a little bit weird. They, I made a mistake on that. No, they actually, what happened was as we discovered better manuscripts, uh, the, the scholars that work so hard to make sure that we have an accurate copy of God's word, they realized that this was an accidental insertion of a study note, and so they moved it back out again to the margins. You probably have a footnote that, that goes down to the end of the page, uh, but it does help us to understand this scene a little bit better, that all of these invalids, lame, blind, sick, they're waiting. They're waiting for deliverance from somewhere from something. 
So this is the scene. This is the setting. Jesus comes upon this. Dozens of disabled people about, and one man in particular grabs his attention. John tells us that this person, this man in particular, he had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. This is actually longer than the average lifespan at this time. This man had not been able to walk. He had been sick. He had been an invalid for longer than most people lived. 38 years. And Jesus, he comes to him and he asks him a very odd question, almost as odd as the questions that I started with this morning. He approaches this man and he says to him, do you want to be healed? I mean, what kind of question is that, right? I mean, this man has been not able to use his legs for almost 40 years. Of course he wants to be healed. What is Jesus up to here? What's going on? Well, actually, the word in our text for healed, it's the less common word. Typically, there's another word that's used, and so Jesus is up to something unique here. Literally, this word means to be whole again, to be put back together, to be restored. So I would submit to you that Jesus isn't just saying to this man, do you want your legs to work again? He's saying, do you want to be whole do you want to be complete? That's quite a different thing, isn't it? And what is the man's response? Well, in verse 7, it says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going down, another steps down before me. Now, remember why this man was here in the first place. He had bought, clearly from his answer, he had bought into the legend. He had bought into the superstition that the first person into the pool after the waters had been stirred up were healed. And so his answer to Jesus goes something like this. Of course I want to be healed. That's why I hang out at this pool. That's why I'm here. Oh, but sir, I, I don't have anyone to help me down into it. And, and when I'm trying to get there, someone else always beats me down. He's saying, of course, I want to be healed. I think this moment in the story is particularly striking. This man is talking to Jesus, God in the flesh. You know, one story before this, at the very end of chapter 4, Jesus heals a young boy who was at the point of death. That's what the text says. And what's even crazier is he wasn't even with this boy. Some, some officials had came and, and said, you know, that official's son was sick. And so they come to him and they say, you know, my son is sick. They're miles away. And Jesus speaks a word and instantly the boy gets better. I mean, that is power. And this man in John 5, he's talking with Jesus the same Jesus that has that power, the God of the universe. It's a striking image because, see, he could have that healing, but he can't see beyond the pool, right? He can't see beyond the pool as his only method and means of healing. This is the God of the universe that he's in conversation with. But he can't see beyond the pool, and what happens next 
I just absolutely love this. Because in one sense, I mean, what the man is doing in a way is saying, will you help me into the pool, right? That's what he's saying to Jesus. And Jesus in one sense says, no, I'm not going to help you, right? He says, no, I will not help you into the pool. But instead, what does Jesus say in verse 8? He says, get up, take your bed, and walk. He says, no, your healing doesn't come from this pool. Your deliverance doesn't come from this pool. Your healing, your deliverance, your wholeness, it comes from me. You have to look beyond the pool. You have to look to me. You have to run to me. You have to believe in me. Get up, take your bed, and walk. Well, and what happens? I mean, there should be no doubt, right? This is God in the flesh. And when God speaks, it is done. The first part of verse 9 reads, At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This man, an invalid for 38 years, is an invalid no longer. You can see that the happy ending coming, right? I mean, sure, at first, the man couldn't see that that Jesus offered something beyond the pool, that he offered a a bigger healing, that he offered to, to make this man whole again. He didn't see it at first, but he will now, right? Surely at this point, this man wants Jesus in his life, right? Not exactly. Let's examine the aftermath, verses 9 through 15. The end of verse 9, it reveals an important piece of information. This is a common technique in Jewish storytelling. You hold back some information until the key part where it needs to come out. So John says in verse 9b, he, he tells us, the readers, now it was the Sabbath when Jesus had done this healing. And this is about to play a key role in what happens next. Follow along with me in verse 10. It reads, The Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now the Jews in this verse are the Jewish religious leaders and authorities. These were people that didn't get along very well with Jesus. And did you catch the deep irony in their question? I mean, a man who hasn't walked in almost 40 years, he's doing that now. He's walking past them. But do they even note that? No. I mean, they just say, why are you carrying your mat? It's, it, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. They totally miss this miraculous healing that has happened. Their focus instead is completely on their rules They had added, do not carry your bed on the Sabbath to the long list. And this man, he was violating that rule. No matter that he hadn't walked in almost 40 years, it was way more important to get to the bottom of this rule breaking. Talk about missing it, right? But unfortunately, the former invalid, the man who is now walking, he misses it too. And he gives us a clue that maybe he doesn't want Jesus in his life. It's not my fault, he says in verse 11. He said, the man who healed me, that's the guy. He's the one that told me to break your rule. It's his fault, not mine. You know, the blame shifting that happens here in this story in in verse 11, it it reminds me a lot of Genesis 3. You know, Adam and Eve, the first humans, our first father, our first mother, they have just broken God's commands. They have rebelled against him, and God, he comes and he calls them on it. He calls them on their rule-breaking, because this is the God of the universe. 
and their rebellion is serious. He calls them on it. Adam says, oh no, it's not my fault. Eve, she made me do it. And then he continues on. He says, and you know what, God? You were the one that put her here. Why'd you do that? And Eve, oh, oh, no, no, not me. It was the serpent. The serpent made me do it. Why did you pick up your mat? Why are you walking with your mat on the Sabbath? Oh, oh, no, 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 not me. The guy who healed me, he's the one that told me to do it. Well, the the religious leaders, they press in farther. They want to know, okay, if someone commanded you to to break this rule, then they're breaking a rule too. And so we want to know, who is it? In verse 12, they ask him, who is this man who told you? Take up your mat and walk. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because they don't say, who is the man who has healed you? They skip over that. They leave that out. Who is the man who told you, take up your mat and walk? But see, the former invalid, he can't even give them what they want. He doesn't know who healed him. Jesus had healed his inability to walk, his 38-year-old inability to walk, and this man wasn't even able to get his name. Wasn't even able to get his name. Well, the aftermath of our story, it continues to unfold in verse 14. This is fascinating to me. Uh, This isn't the end of the encounter between Jesus and this man. In verse 14, it says that Jesus found him in the temple. So Jesus finds this man in the temple, and this is what he says to him. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus' comment here, it really, it deserves further unpacking. Just a few chapters later, in the, book of, in the book of John, in John 9, there's another story of one of Jesus' healings. Uh, at the beginning of that story, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking along the road, and they pass a man who was born blind. He'd been uh, born blind from birth. And so the disciples in John 9, 2, they say to him, uh, Rabbi, who, was, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, they were reflecting a common Jewish belief at that time that every illness, every suffering was the result, the direct result of a specific sin. I mean, we we know this, that this was a belief, right? Because we can even think back to Job's story in the Old Testament. As as readers of that story, we know that, that God was testing Job, but his friends, they show up, and what do they say to him? Hey, there's something, you sinned somehow, some way, maybe you don't remember what it was, but you sinned, and that's why this stuff is happening to you. But Jesus in John 9, he blows up this category. In John 9, 3, he responds to the disciples and he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You know, clearly, I think what Jesus is doing here in John 9, he's establishing that there are instances of suffering that are not the direct result of specific sin. And yet in John 5, it seems as though Jesus is saying somewhat of the opposite. He's saying that the bad thing that has already happened to this man, presumably his 38-year-old inability to walk, is the result of his sin. So Jesus blows up the category, but he's also holding it in tension. And broadly speaking, the Bible clearly teaches that all suffering is a result of sin. In July, I I preached on the the problem and the reality of sin. 
And one of my main points was sin is an imposter. You know, sin was not a part of God's original design plan. He did not create this world with brokenness and suffering and sin in it. But, but in Genesis 3, when, when Adam and Eve, and, and, and by extension us, when we opened the door to sin, we invited suffering and illness and brokenness along in with it. And so under this broader theological framework, we can, yes, say that all suffering is a result of sin because it wasn't part of God's. Neither one of those were a part of God's original plan. But John 5.14, along with, with other verses in the Old and New Testament, they put forward that specific sin can lead to specific suffering. Specific sin can lead to specific suffering. And this may be difficult, it may be uncomfortable, but on one level, we do see this bear out in life, right? I mean, if you are an alcoholic and your liver fails, that's specific suffering. Or if you continue to look at pornography and your marriage falls apart, that's specific suffering. And, and this is God's universe. You're right, Isaiah 55 teaches and says so clearly that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't necessarily know why God's judgment sometimes falls and other times tarries. We don't have an answer for that at all times. Please hear me say that this difficult reality in our text says nothing immediately about your specific situation. It's important to remember that this is a narrative. It's a story of one man's experience and encounter with Jesus. Can it teach us theological truth? Yes, absolutely. But we must be careful to not be unilaterally prescriptive out of the descriptive. If you are suffering this morning, physically or otherwise, don't hear me say that it's absolutely the result of a specific sin in your life. I would never dream of saying something like that. But I do want to urge you and all of us to press into God, press into his grace, his mercy, seek him out and pursue him. Remember, he promises to receive us no matter what our situation is. Returning to verse 14, the end of Jesus' comment that nothing worse may happen to you, this most probably refers to eternal judgment. Remember, Jesus' original question to this man was not just do you want your legs to work again, but it was do you want to be made whole? From the very beginning, Jesus was offering this man something much bigger than his physical condition, than an improvement to his physical condition. And a majority of the rest of John 5, if you look down, if you're following along with me, it deals with this reality of judgment, and it, it's specifically about Jesus' role in it. So John 5, 14, and Jesus' comment that nothing worse may happen to you, in reference to eternal judgment, this sets up and tees off the rest of what happens in this chapter. Jesus is saying to this man, your sin has already cost you so much. Don't let it cost you eternal life. 
Well, unfortunately, the ending of the story isn't any better than the middle. Verse 15 reads, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. You know, I mentioned before uh, John 9 and the, the other healing story that happens a couple of chapters later. Uh, in that story, uh, there's a moment where the religious leaders, they want to know who healed this man. And so this guy in John 9, he also reveals to Jesus that it was, or he reveals to the religious leaders that it was Jesus who healed him. But I think we need to put these two revealings next to each other. So listen to D.A. Carson's words on this subject. He says, it will not do to suppose the man in John 5 is innocently giving credit where credit is due, like the man in John 9. In the latter case, John 9, credit is given when it is still a question of establishing the reality and credibility of the miracle. In the present context, John 5, the motive can hardly be a desire to assign appropriate praise to Jesus, for the hostile opposition has already manifested itself, end quote. In other words, the man in John 5 isn't trying to proclaim Jesus. He knows that the Jewish leaders are out to get Jesus, and he figures that he might probably still be in trouble, and so essentially he goes and tattles on him. And this stands in stark contrast to what happens in John 9 with the man who's healed there. In fact, we can continue on with these parallels. Uh, John, it's common for him to use characters in his gospel as foils to one another. So the, the woman at the well is a foil to Nicodemus. We've looked at those stories the last couple weeks. And this man in John 5 is a foil to the man in John 9. In John 9, the man's suffering was not the result of his sin. In John 5, it was the result of his sin. In John 5, the man blames Jesus. In John 9, the man defends Jesus to the religious leaders, and he even gets thrown out of the synagogue, which was a massive, massive thing. And most notably is the ending of the stories. In John 9, there's another encounter between Jesus and the man, and the text tells us that he worshiped Jesus. That's a huge deal in this culture because you only worshiped God. So in John 9, by worshiping Jesus, this man that was healed, he says, you are God. But in John 5, the ending of our story, verse 15, is the man going and tattling on Jesus to the religious leaders. Truly, a tale of two healings. Well, it's obvious that this isn't the easiest or most lighthearted story. And some of you may have come in this morning, if you're familiar with this story, you may have come in with a different understanding of this character. Um, as you have read him, maybe he was a more neutral character in your mind or, or a positive character. Um, that's totally possible. But, but as I studied and examined, I came to the conclusion that the weight of the evidence, it really sits on the side of the scale of this man being a negative character. And an overall negative story and an instance where someone says, no, I don't want Jesus in my life. And I think this is strategic by John. I don't think he, he accidentally inserted this and it's like, whoops, I should have put another good story in there. I think it's strategic for him to have a negative character and a negative story. Because see, not everyone is going to come to, to belief in Jesus. Not everyone is going to respond positively. Not everyone is going to answer the question this morning, do you really want Jesus in your life with an affirmative? 
And so John includes this story, I think, very intentionally to give us an example of someone who doesn't do that, but then also shows us how Jesus still interacts with and pursues that individual, right? Because he doesn't give up on him. He heals him, and then he finds him in the temple later and warns him of his condition. He says, sin no more. He doesn't find him and rub it in or, or find him and say, well, it's all over for you, buddy. He finds him and he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I think this is incredibly strategic by John. And even though I've presented this character maybe in a, in a bit of a more negative light this morning, I think it's so important for us not to just point fingers at him. I didn't start off this morning asking this question and saying, we're going to, hopefully you didn't hear this, we're going to examine this story and we're going to find a guy that just totally gets it wrong. <laughs> and we can kind of all point at him and then laugh and then pray and go home. No. I said, I want to examine this story because I think it's going to help us think more carefully before we answer the question of whether or not we really want Jesus in our life. So this man, he, he may have said no, and we don't know what happens to him after this, but he may have said no, but what I want to close with is three observations of what it looks like when we answer yes to this question. When we say yes, I do want Jesus in my life, what does it look like? Well, first, you don't want tweaks. You want transformation. You don't want tweaks. You want transformation. The man in John 5, he didn't want to be whole. He didn't want the full transformation that Jesus offered him. He only wanted a tweak or two. But let's be honest, how, how, true, of this is, how true of this is it of us? That didn't come out right. How often is this true of us as well? How often do you or I just want tweaks and not transformation? C.S. Lewis, he paints a stark picture of this in The Great Divorce. There's this character, a man who's carrying around this annoying lizard on his shoulder. It's a metaphor for his lust. And the lizard, it just won't shut up. And an angel, it, it comes over to the man and it offers to silence the lizard. That'd be great, the man says. But as soon as the angel begins, the man makes him stop. That hurts, he complains. Don't you want me to kill it, the angel asks. Who said anything about killing it? The man responds, I just want it to be quiet. It's so embarrassing. And he gives excuse after excuse, refusing to be whole, refusing to be transformed, looking for tweaks, not transformation. Friends, Jesus did not come to live, die, and rise again so that good people could get a few tweaks and be better. No. Jesus came so that dead people could be made alive, so that dead people could be transformed into alive people. And at first glance, it seems as though, of course, we would want transformation, right? I mean, if I'm dead and it takes transformation to make me alive, sign me up, right? But it takes more than that, doesn't it? We know it does. It takes more than that. Are you prepared for Jesus to transform your checkbook? Are you prepared for Jesus to transform your sex life? Are you prepared for Jesus to transform the way you treat others at work? Are you prepared for Jesus to transform your grades at school? 
Jesus doesn't want just part of you so that he can make a tweak or two. Jesus wants and demands all of you so that he can transform you from being dead to being alive. So do you really want Jesus in your life? Second, when you answer yes to that question, you don't want relief, you want rescue. You don't want relief, you want rescue. Imagine with me that you have a dislocated shoulder, lots and lots of pain, right? And if I gave you tons and tons of pain medicine, it would stop the pain, right? But that would be relief, not rescue. In order to be rescued from the pain, in order to be rescued from that shoulder injury, you need it to be set again. And that's going to be even more painful than it is right now, but it's the only way. You know, even if the pool of Bethsaida didn't provide actual healing for these sick people that were hanging out by it, I'm willing to bet that it provided temporary relief. But here's the thing. We all have pools, don't we? We all have places that we look to for temporary relief from our problems. It may be our work, it may be a hobby, it may be a relationship, or it may be hours of mindless television, surfing the internet, it may be drugs, it may be pornography. Pools. Pools. Providing nothing but temporary relief from our problems. But see, these pools... They can't do anything more than provide temporary relief, and they don't do anything about our capital P problem. You see, friends, your biggest problems, my biggest problem is not our problems. It's our sin. That's our biggest problem. We need rescue from our sin, not relief from our sin. Here again, the words of D.A. Carson. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and so he sent us a savior. We need rescue from our sin, not relief. So do you really want Jesus in your life? Finally, if you answer yes to that question, you want someone, not something. Again, I think the man in in John 5, he wanted something. He wanted his legs to work again, and that's a huge thing, right? But at the end of the day, I think the evidence says that he didn't want someone. He didn't want Jesus. But I'm not going to be the first to point fingers here. Oh, no. When when I was thinking even just about this point in particular, I was reminded of something that Bill said uh, in a sermon a a couple months ago. It was the, the very last week of our Does It Really Matter series. And that series concluded with a message on the end. And Bill said this about heaven. He said, if you can imagine being happy in heaven 
without Jesus being there, then you don't really want Jesus. You just want his things. That was one of those moments when you're listening to a sermon, you just want the, the preacher to stop because you need to think about it a really long time. Instead, I scribbled it down into my journal and I wrote underneath it in all capital letters, super convicting, because it was, and it still is. I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, all too often I can picture heaven without Jesus and think of myself being happy there. In those moments, I don't want Jesus, I don't want someone, I just want something. I just want Jesus' things. I don't really want him in those moments. No, when we answer this question, do you really want Jesus in your life? And you say yes, it means that you want someone, not just something. How about you? Do you catch yourself wishing for Jesus' graces and mercies without actually wanting Jesus? Do you really want Jesus in your life? Well, I hope in these three quick points, I've drawn out how important it is to press into our own answer to that question, do you really want Jesus? Again, as I said at the beginning, it may seem simple and obvious to those of us who call ourselves Christians, but I think we've seen, hopefully, that it's more layered and complex than that. There are blind spots of indifference in all of our hearts. And thank God that Jesus listens to the indifferent. And not only should we thank God for that, but we should also resolve all to listen differently to the indifferent among and around us. Remember, not everyone is going to respond positively to Jesus, but he doesn't write him off, does he? No. He finds him afterward. He pursues him. Bill's big idea from his sermon last week was, don't write off who Jesus runs after. John 5 reminds us that Jesus doesn't write off the indifferent, whether that's us and the indifference in our hearts or whether that's the indifferent in our lives among and around us. Let's resolve to press into our own indifference and repent of that, and let's resolve to listen well to those around us who may seem to be indifferent to Jesus. Do you really want Jesus in your life? I'd like to close this morning by reading together a prayer of confession. Again, I'll raise my hand to be the first one I need to confess of my indifference. Would you follow along with me and, and read this prayer? Father, we confess that we take your grace for granted. Forgive us for our indifference toward you, your mission, and your church. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and ignite in us a zealous fire for your name. Help us, your church, to faithfully preach your gospel in our homes and our vocations. Awaken the hearts of those in our city who are indifferent toward you. Help us to listen to them well. Open eyes and ears and soften hearts to the gospel. Do a surprising work in our city and start it with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you bow your heads? Dear Father, I echo those prayers. Every individual in this room, Lord, I pray that you would show us those blind spots of indifference in our hearts 
that you would help each one of us to answer positively the question, do we really want your son Jesus in our lives? And God, I pray that we would listen well to those who are indifferent in our lives to your son Jesus around us. In your name I pray, amen. Well, here at the Brookside campus, we celebrate communion uh, most weeks, and uh, it's a tangible reminder. I love Bill says this every week. It's a tangible reminder of the good news of the gospel, that our sins have been forgiven, right? We need rescue from our sins, not relief. And, and communion reminds us that that rescue has come in the form of Jesus, his, his body and his blood. They've been forgiven by Jesus' work on the cross. In communion, I love this, the gospel is proclaimed to our senses. We get to see and taste and touch the good news. That's why we do this every week. And if you're new here, I just want to explain real briefly how we do it. We have four stations, two in the front, two in the back. Uh, The station in the back off to my right has gluten-free elements if you need that. Um, and and we'll, we'll come gather in groups of four to six and, and take of the bread and dip it in the cup and, and then wait to partake together as a group um, and, then, and then take and eat. Um, again, as Bill mentioned, we have prayer that's available um, during this time if you need that. Uh, and it, we practice open communion here, so you don't have to be a member uh, of Christ's community, you just have to be a follower of Jesus. You just have to be a follower of Jesus and you're, you're welcome to come to the table. If that's not you, if you're not a follower, like I already said this morning, we are so glad that you are here. I, I would maybe encourage you to take this time uh, to, to pray and to ask Jesus to reveal himself to you because he wants you to answer yes to that question. He's pursuing you. Well, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. After blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, eat. This is my body. And in the same way, he took a cup. After he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Come now to the Lord's table to see, to taste, and to touch the good news of the forgiveness of sins. Come when you are ready.